Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. A good story needs forms of resources of support and needs to be clear about their strategic intentions for impact. If you can then articulate that, you're going to have a better chance of finding new and unusual partners to go on that journey with you. Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? Because I'm a writer and an editor, it takes uh, the editor has to understand that he is not the writer. The writer has to understand that he is not the editor, and that there are things that an editor, especially if you're writing for, well, I mean, if you're writing for a magazine, uh, you have specific parameters in which you have to work. You you have word count. You have to consider your audience. Editing, 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 and editing, which is natural in any book. I'll still have editors that are making sure that the message is refined, that it is very readable and absorbable, but you know, the editors at the same time won't change what the message is because that would just compromise the story that I'm trying to tell. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm your host, Marvin Polis, and joining me is your co-host, Fred Keating. This is the second in our series of themed episodes where we talk to several people on the same topic. The topic of this episode is writing careers. How do they develop? How do writers find their publishers and readers? And, and what are the elements necessary for a successful and sustainable writing career? In fact, Fred, we both happen to be writers. What are some of the things that you've learned in your career? Well, Marvin, I've learned that 90% of writing is rewriting because that's often what a, a writer spends 90% of his or her time doing. But I've always been interested in how writers decide what to write and how ideas present themselves to a point where a writer says, I, I got to write this down and I know others would be interested in what I've found. I recently interviewed Tracy Friesen, author of the definitive Bible on documentary filmmaking called Story, Money, Impact. A filmmaker herself, Tracy was a producer in a post facility and then became producer and later executive producer for the prestigious National Film Board of Canada, otherwise known as the NFB, where she produced many short and long-form film documentaries. That's right. And Tracy recently compiled what she knew and learned about the process of documentary filmmaking in that groundbreaking book, Story Money Impact. The book describes the use of film as a transforming influence in steering and affirming positive change in the world. Since your interview with Tracy, she's taken a position as Director of Communications and Engagement at the David Suzuki Foundation. You talked with her about how her work on the book began. The book is a result of a culmination of all of the experiences that you've had in a variety of of media and with a variety of organizations. When did the concept of the need for a gathering of this kind of information start to circulate within your own system and then take shape? A real pivotal moment for me was the chance to attend an event called the Good Pitch. It's put on by BritDoc in the UK in partnership with the Sundance Institute and others. And just as I was wrapping up my time at the National Film Board, 
I had a chance to attend an event in San Francisco, and I just need to take a minute to describe the magic and power of a good pitch event. It's like a pitching forum, which many filmmakers will be familiar with. Somebody's standing up like a dragon's den, telling about their project and then getting a response. However, the twist with the good pitch is that everybody in the room, and particularly at the pitching table, has been heavily curated to be there to be potential supporters of the projects based on the themes and the content they're exploring. And so what you have is a filmmaker pitching, telling about the film that they're working on, then sitting silent while for up to 30 minutes, the moderator is just pulling support from the room. So it's not like, how was that pitch? Oh, it's not a fit. It's like, what are you, Fred? going to do for this project. I know that you have a Rolodex that's going to help them with, and what are you, Betty? You know, you, and what I saw happen in those rooms that day was the people who switch out, the nine people that are watching the pitch and the 200 people that are in the theater by invitation, jumping up, looking for the ways that they can support the project. Maybe it's financial, but maybe it's actually, I've got this network. I've got this introduction to someone in Ottawa. I've got this... And those seven projects, or however many are going to get pitched in a given day, leave that room with not only a, a larger funding basket in terms of their bank account, but a community that wants to see these films succeed. And what was unique about Good Pitch is it wasn't broadcasters in the room, although there were some. It was NGOs, it was nonprofits, it was philanthropists, it was impact investors, there were brands there, there were people that in Canada, we haven't typically looked at as other forms of support for our documentary films. They were people that for mutual benefit, wanted to be a part of these projects because these filmmakers were telling stories that furthered their own missions. So for me, this was a huge aha moment that there are people out there, they have money to spend, they have a mandate they're trying to move forward, and they need these storytellers, they need these skills. And so how do we match make these people together? How do we get these uh, people with resources, but with values and goals, together with artists who want to make film and media projects related to the same topics. That was to me a catalyst. And I began doing research and ended up doing a couple of papers for organizations in Canada related to this topic. And uh, it was uh, our very own Sharon McGowan from UBC's film school who said, that's a lot of research you've done. You should think about tying it up in a book. I ended up making a pitch to Focal Press and they didn't have anything in their catalog that was quite related to this. And so they offered a contract and that's where it all uh, started to come together. How do you distill so many aspects of creative activities, especially in the documentary filmmaking arena, down to three words for the title, story, money, impact. What's the significance there? It's the sweet spot. You know, I think they're all equally important. And I found on this journey, as I was interviewing people for the book, those three issues kept coming up. They all matter. They all matter for social issues, media content. I want to be clear that there are a lot of amazing entertainment products, whether they're documentary or other forms of media that don't have as their intent wanting to make social change. So so this model really is designed for people who 
who want to use media to affect social change. And once that clarity was in place, it became very clear that everybody, whether an artist, a funder, or an activist, a good story needs forms of resources of support and needs to be clear about their strategic intentions for impact. And for me, the framing was, if you know the impact, if you can articulate on some level the call to action or the change that you want to see in the world, as simple as awareness raising or as specific as this piece of legislation I want to see overturned, if you can name that, you can design a story that will better demonstrate that, that will be personal and emotional and compelling. If you can then articulate that, you're going to have a better chance of finding new and unusual partners to go on that journey with you. If you know the change that you want to make, you'll find very quickly that people are already doing good work in that space, activist organizations. And they will look to you and your potential film as a gift. You know, it's like, this is the tool we've been waiting for. When I did Being Caribou back at the NFB, there's an organization in Washington, D.C. that was uh, Wilderness League. The, Art, the Alaska Wilderness League looked at this film and said, this is what we need to do our work. So there was an immediate and obvious partnership. And most thematic topics that are social issues related, there are amazing nonprofits already in the space. So don't reinvent the wheel, partner with them, and together you'll go farther. Well, as Tracy mentioned, the more effectively a writer can articulate the impact of the project being written, the easier it is to find partners who can assist in getting your project to the next step. Next, Fred speaks to Eric Termundi. Fred, tell us about Eric. Eric Termundi is a young entrepreneur, motivational speaker, and business consultant to both employers and potential employees on the issues of multiple generations working together at close quarters. But he's also an author of a recent book, Rethink Work, Finding and Keeping the Right Talent. Rethink Work is available on Amazon and at other booksellers. You caught up with Eric recently and talked to him about the importance of building a team of associates who can help a writer in the areas where specialist skills may be necessary to get the book finished and properly promoted. Let's listen. This writing of a full-length book that condensed or compressed or collected some of the ideas you've been talking about on the live speaking circuit for some years now, what was that process like and where did you go for assistance in a skill area that you weren't particularly proficient in? Certainly was no easy task. It took months and months, I'd say about eight, to write, first of all, the premise of the book. So I started by writing 50 articles, 50 key points that I thought were really important. Then reorganized them into chapters, to themes, and then tied them all together to tell a bit more of a story so that it read like a novel and not like a series of short short clips. From there, I have to give credit where credit's due, Sarah Scott of Barlow Books, I brought her on as a ghostwriter, and the truth is the book wouldn't have been possible without her. To have her help and to have her be able to thread those ideas together was really what brought this book to life. And uh, Sarah was fantastic at what she did. It started with phone interviews. I sent her all of my manuscripts and everything that I'd done, tens of thousands of words, uh, and she was able to just tighten it up, clean it up, 
keep my voice and my language and ultimately get that story out more effectively. Where did it go from there in terms of the publication process? Editing, 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 and editing, which is natural in any book. And then, obviously, to the, to the copywriters and then to, to print. The ideas and the opinions aren't something that they're looking to compromise or change. It was more, how do I most effectively articulate those ideas and that message? And, you know, whether I'm doing a, a presentation now or an article for LinkedIn or some sort of publication, I'll still have editors that are making sure that the message is refined, that it is very readable and absorbable, but you know, the editors at the same time won't change what the message is because that would just compromise the story that I'm trying to tell. We'll be going to Indigo in chapters uh, February 18th into Amazon as well. Um, it's already there for pre-order now. Um, but in terms of PR and getting the story out there, we're working with uh, with a PR agent that is certainly helping with the media side of things. And uh, I don't have a ton of say in that. Again, I'm letting people who are good at what they do be good at what they do. And I'm trying to just not get in the way and, and dirty the water, so to speak, while I'm trying to go and, and build driver and, and, and help my partners and, and get my story out as well. So uh, when I get a call and say I need to be here at a certain time to be able to tell my story, fantastic. But I'll try not to, to get in the way too much. And uh, we feel that we've got purpose and impact in the work that we're doing because we can have our story, our message, and our services really ripple into the people in the communities that we're working with. For more information on Eric Termunday, his book, Rethink Work, or to hear him speak at TED Talks and other presentations, search for him on YouTube. Eric is spelled E-R-I-C, and Termunday is spelled T-E-R-M-U-E-N-D-E. Marvin, on a recent expedition to New York City, you called on a friend of mine, Patrick Dillon. Patrick is a writer who for decades has followed and expressed in his writings his passion for opera. He even lives in the shadow of the great Metropolitan Opera House at Lincoln Center in Manhattan. And you caught up with him for coffee just across the street from the Lincoln Center to discuss the roles of writers and editors and how to create paying work for oneself as a writer. Let's listen in. So Patrick, you are a freelance writer, and how long have you been doing this sort of thing? Well, I've been doing it for a very long time in, in different ways. I went to college and I got a degree in English and I was trying to parlay that into something tangible. I started doing freelance work as an editor in various publishing houses. I started out at uh, Delacour Dial and then moved over to Knopf and Random House and I'm still working for Knopf and Random House. In fact, I think I've been working as a freelance for them longer than most of their in-house employees have been working there. But it was in 1997 when a friend of mine from college contacted me, and he was an arts editor at the Globe and Mail in Toronto, and he needed an interview done with the German singer Udo Lemper, the cabaret artist, and uh, he wheedled me into doing it, and I, I did it, and uh, I started writing regularly for the, um, for the Globe and Mail. Things just started to roll from then on. I had those Globe and Mail pieces to show, but um, I kind of pounded the pavement, sending out emails. Uh, calling people, uh, sending them uh, samples of my writing. I got a few other jobs. I, I got a job writing a, just a, a single article for the Chicago Tribune by contacting the uh, music editor at the Chicago Tribune and saying, hey, you know, I've got this idea. What do you think of it? And, uh, you know, here's an example of my work. And, uh, and they hired me and I did it. And, uh, you know, that was uh, a wonderful thing. And, uh, a lot of the magazines and uh, uh, journals that I had read over the years uh, 
whatever, I do the same thing with them. You have to believe in your own worth and you have to kind of be aggressive uh, uh, about it. In your experience, just generally, what does it take for writers and editors to get along well together and to be truly collaborative? Well, I think uh, because I'm a writer and an editor, it takes uh, the editor has to understand that he is not the writer. The writer has to understand that he is not the editor and that there are things that an editor, especially if you're writing for, well, I mean, if you're writing for a magazine, uh, you have specific parameters in which you have to work. You, you have word count. You have to consider your audience. The editorial staff is not doing it for his or her own glory, uh, doing it for the author's sake. And uh, suggestions should not be taken too personally that uh, if a criticism is made in order to create a better product, a, a, a better book. And Patrick, as, as we consider our listeners who are at the beginning of their careers and, and even into mid-career, some of them do want to be freelance writers. What advice do you have for them with respect to where are the opportunities? Well, I think the opportunities are often you can have a, a blog and people will read it and people will be interested or not interested in, in what you uh, uh, read. Uh, but I think it's a wonderful way of getting started uh, because you, you're self-publishing in a way. You, you don't need to have a magazine or a publishing house uh, behind you. You can write what you want and uh, you know you can generate a certain amount of interest if you're good at what you do. And I think that that's the important thing. The important thing is to uh, get your voice heard. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I've got a friend uh, who is, well, he has a blog called Opera Teen, and he, when I met him, he was, I think, about 13 years old, a wonderful guy named Harry Rose, and he's now a senior in high school, and uh, he writes a wonderful blog. He's a terrific writer, and uh, he's parlayed this into, uh, he he got an interview with Peter Gell, the general manager of the Met, you know, which is something that a lot of print journalists uh, couldn't do. And uh, all of us, you know, when we care about something, write better about it, talk better about it, we're, uh, uh, we're just more engaged. And the more engaged we are in something, the more engaging we are to a reader. Yeah, so find a passion, you know, find something that you uh, enjoy. If you're a writer, you kind of sense what you, you know, what you're good at. You have to be very alert uh, to the marketing possibilities of, uh, of your work. And, and you also have to decide whom you're trying to reach. I think that's very uh, important. So you market yourself. If you're writing baseball poetry, say, uh, you don't market yourself in a music magazine. If you're writing music journalism, you don't market yourself in Sports Illustrated. Uh, it's it's a balancing act in writing because, as you say, you're writing for yourself. But I think if you don't write, if you're trying to write just for a market and forget about yourself, that's a huge mistake. But uh, but it's equally there are always going to be people who are you know outside your expected readership who pick something up and enjoy what you read, and that's a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing indeed. A writing career can become a lifelong learning experience with interesting ideas, people, and places to explore. But as our writers in this episode remind us, you need to find a passion, your passion, and seek the information you need to feed it, then share it with other like-minded people. Feed their need for your information or stories and find associates who can do the necessary jobs that you need done to get your work out to readers. That's right, Fred. We need to be assertive in our quests for assignments, whether they are our own ideas or whether they come from others. And most of all, as Patrick said, 
you need to believe in yourself. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity.